Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. To hear more sermons and to find out more about our church, please visit SugarHillChurch.com. Hey, welcome. We're going to have a great time. If you have your Bibles, find the book of 1 Samuel. Um, this may sound familiar. Last week, we talked about um, the relationship and friendship between Jonathan and David. And today, we're going to take a look at the challenged relationship between David and Jonathan's father, Saul. How does that work? Well, just a quick refresher. In 1 Samuel, in uh, chapter 24, the whole chapter is our text today. We find that um, Saul, Jonathan's dad, just can't stand David. And he's on this attack, hunting to try to find David for the singular purpose of killing him. Now, David hasn't done anything wrong. All David has done is won the hearts of the people by being a man after God's own heart, attempting to do what God wanted him to do. Now, let me just stop and say, Jerry Falwell once said, if you're leading, you're going to wake up hurting. If you're attempting to do something, at some point, you're going to ruffle somebody's feathers. If you're attempting to do something for the cause of Christ, inevitably, somebody's going to find fault with you. That's just how it works. I mean, show me somebody that everybody just loves, and I'll show you somebody who's not doing jack. Because if you're attempting to do something, you're ticking somebody off. I mean, it's just kind of how our human nature works. All David did was what Saul asked him to do, was go be a mighty warrior, and he did. And when he came back, everybody said, wow, David, you are something special. And he got more glory than Saul. So Saul now is on the hunt for David and Lamont one of the weirdest writers and yet one of the most brilliant writers I know, said this quote, and I found it pretty interesting. You can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Okay, now let that one sink in for just a minute. Because you see, what the Bible teaches is that for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son. Well, the Bible teaches that God is love. The Bible also teaches that God made us in him, his image. We are to be filled with that love. But when we try to make God into our image, we discover, wow, we're on an island when we're filled with hate. We're on an island when we're filled with bitterness and resentment. I mentioned at the welcome that our challenge is not conflict. Our challenge is mismanaged conflict. Our challenge is not our enemy. We know who's against us. So we know where they stand. Most of our interpersonal challenges are with friends that become enemies because we don't know where we stand with them. And we build an expectation that is not met. And now they become a frenemy. And oftentimes we don't know what to do. Five different times in the story of Saul chasing after David, five different times, Saul says to David, we're good. I know you you love God. I know you're God's anointed. I know God's hand is on you. I'm I'm not gonna try to kill you. Let's kiss and make up. Let's hug it out. Let's have a bromance. This is good. And five times he goes on his back on his word. Any of you have those kind of relationships where it just seems like it never stops? It never ends. Any of you have those? I mean, am I the only one that seems to to, to struggle with that? I I think we all do. We all have this challenge in our life. I mean, to be human is to have enemies. 
To be human is to have frenemies. To be human is to have challenging relationships. Now, you say, well, Chuck, how do you support that? Even Jesus knew it. Listen to what Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So even Jesus knew we're going to have problems. Now, how did Jesus know that? Because he had them. Okay, now, if people find fault with God who came to earth, to heal people, preach a message of love and reconciliation and provide a way for forgiveness of our sins and go to heaven through the shedding of his blood on the cross and his resurrection from that tomb. If people find an enemy in him, how much more so are they gonna find an enemy in you? Jesus knew this is coming. We're going to have problems. The question is not whether or not we're going to have enemies. The question is, are we going to pursue them even when it costs us something in love? Because we tend to look at all of life through, you know, cash, credit, and control. I mean, that's our economy of relationships. Cash, what's it gonna cost me? Credit, who's going to get it? And control, who's gonna have it? If we would just surrender all three and say, God pays for everything, God gets credit for all things, and God can have control of my life, then all of a sudden that economy is different. By the way, that's true of your money, that's true of your relationships, that's true of your friends, that's true of your marriage. Take any context in life and put that system of economy, of God's economy in there, and it works. But most especially in this relationship where we see this huge collision of different worldviews between Saul and between David. Saul being filled with envy and strife and David being filled with this willingness to extend grace and forgiveness. So I guess the question we would ask ourselves is this, which one of those two guys are you? Ouch. Now, in, in, in full disclosure, at the beginning of the week, when Bobby and I left to go to the Dominican Republic on um, Monday, or I guess that's when we left, the week's a little blurry right now, but when we left on Monday, uh, my full intention was to preach out of Ephesians 5.15. Because frankly, that, that's a feel-good passage, man. You know, I was going to, let's all, be, we are the world. I mean, that's where I was going, right? The problem was by the time I got home, by the time Saturday morning had arrived, I kept thinking to myself, you know, it seems like in church world, let's just forget your business for a minute, just church world, we struggle with this. I mean, you know what I found? I have found that people in the corporate world deal with this far better than people in the church world do because they just deal with it. And they're open and honest. What I find in the church world is we put a mask on and we, and we play through this. But the Bible looks at these, these two relationships and we find this great example of what it is to pursue our enemies, our frenemies, in the exact same way we kicked the series off when Pastor Bobby talked about speaking the truth in love. Now, some of us are good at speaking the truth. I mean, some of us are good, especially when you have opportunity to speak truth in attack mode. But now when you add that truth in love, all of a sudden things get a little more difficult. Now, some of us are good on the love part. It's okay. We're all good. We kind of got that passive aggressive thing. As long as I, if I say we're good, but I can harbor it in my heart, we're good. But you know, that, that is mismanaged and unbiblical in how we deal with conflict. To simply say, I agree so that we can fake like we're all in one agreement. How wrong is that? I mean, God didn't give you a brain so you could lay down and die. He gave you brain so you could think and so you could, you, could, you could work with people that we might actually work together for greater kingdom good. By the way, Morgan, thanks for putting up the uh, Espanol sign out there. Very cool looking. But the, but the point is, 
How would we work together? How would we find our uniqueness? Well, let me give you a couple of points here that may help. In our relationships, if you look in, in chapter 24 in 1 Samuel, look with me in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the, the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Now, when you hear that, you think, okay, that is some weird direction. And why did he take 3,000 dudes? Okay, that is six times the amount of men that David has. One word comes to mind, overkill. But that's because he's paranoid. That's because when you harbor bitterness and resentment and you don't deal with it in a timely fashion, what will happen is paranoia will build up in your heart and you'll begin to stack layers of problems and he has made David into an enemy when David's never done anything to him. With this misconception, now it's overkill. And he came in verse three to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Am I the only one that finds that humorous in a middle school way? Now, while there, apparently Saul decides to take a break and take a nap. Now, why he chose the same place to do both, I'm not sure. But he does. Now, watch what happens. This is absolutely awesome to me. I mean, this this doesn't get any better. Verse 4, now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, so they're already there. Saul doesn't know they're there. And the men of David said to David, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. What David's men are saying is God has brought you your enemy and he doesn't even know we're here. Take that dagger out of the sheath and plunge it into his heart and we're going to have a party because we will have shed his blood and you're going to feel good because you have taken him out. It's here. You can, you can exact your revenge right now. You can win. Because isn't that what we like to do? You can win. And then David all of a sudden teaches us a whole nother perspective. He says, then David arose and stealthily, I love that, cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now this is super perspective here. The robe being the picture of the king as a picture of his power and authority. And David I, I can only imagine raises that knife. And, I, and at one point had to have thought, I'm going to plunge this bad boy into his heart and I'll be done with this mess. And all of the country will say, David has won and I'll be the man. And I will have gotten back and I will feel good because I won. I cut that guy off on 285 and didn't let him back in. I won. but he takes the knife and he cuts a piece of the robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and he did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, 
Why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord, listen to this, and if you're underlining, if you haven't, make sure you circle this. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Now we could read on and we'd find more and more of how David has continued this process, but I want to give you three quick points here. Number one, in dealing with a relationship, what did we learn from David? Number one, don't take the kill shot. When everything in your human heart says exact your own revenge, get some, look what David did. When God gave him the opportunity, what did David say? Wait a minute, this is not my, this is, I'm going to let the Lord take care of this. You know what I think? Sometimes we want revenge because we're pretty sure we can fix it. Could I just say to you, can you imagine how much more so God dealt with Saul? Why wouldn't you stop taking the kill shot? Trust the Lord. I mean, if anybody had the right to go on the attack, it was David. I mean, he even buys into the idea of sneaking up on, on Saul and he cuts off the robe. I mean, this is a big deal for us as we deal for conflict. It's not about us. It's about a bigger picture. Has it ever occurred to you that the conflict that is in your life often is not about you and that person, it's about everybody else around you that it affects? It's about how they see how you're going to deal with one another, how you're going to confront one another, how you're going to work with one another, how you're going to surrender it to the Lord and not take the kill shot when you could, but you're going to take and allow God to do a work in your life and bring reconciliation for the cause of Christ and for the goodness of his church. They're created in God's image. Listen, if they're Christians, Christ has redeemed and purchased them. If they're not Christians, then why would you go to war with them instead of preaching the gospel to them? And so I look at this and David gives us this perspective here that, wait a minute, we, we need to see past our own hurt. We need to see past our own hearts and be struck that we would move toward them and display humility and patience in courage. I said it last week and I'll say it again, and it is tweetable. Anybody can be a jerk. Why be anybody? Anybody can exact revenge. Why be anybody? Anybody can go on attack mode. Why be anybody? Why not be like David, who, by the way, wasn't perfect. He was a guy who was an adulterer. He was a guy who became a murderer and yet became a man after God's own heart who had the opportunity to exact revenge. And what did he do? No, I'm going to trust you with it. Lord, I'm going to trust you with it. Be the friend you want to be your friend and make it right instead of fighting to prove you're right. Boy, I, I hate that part. I really do. I mean, I'm preaching into a mirror here. You know what I love to do? I love to prove I'm right. Do you, are you like that? Because to prove I'm right gives me the opportunity to prove that somebody else is wrong. You know what I hate? When I'm pretty sure I'm right, but I'm not. Do any of you suffer from the disease of terminal certainty? You're just always right? Yeah, I love that. You know, a wife's going... <laughs> First of all, don't take the kill shot. Secondly, make the first move. 
Make the first move. And instead of plotting and planning and, and treating him like an enemy and try, thinking you're a general in a war and plotting and planning every, every motive and script in life, David tries to make sure things are right with Saul at huge risk to himself. This guy's trying to kill him. He's not just saying bad stuff about it. He doesn't just dislike him. He's trying to kill him. And at huge risk, he takes the step. Matter of fact, David wanted to clarify this. In verse 15, Saul shouldn't have feared David any more than the scripture says, a dead dog or a flea. They had no reason to fear him. This is how we ought to approach our frenemies. Instead of sitting back and waiting for them to make the first move that, that feels so natural and justified, God wants to give us strength and courage to move forward toward them with difficult relationships first. Be the first person that steps up and say, let's make this right. Let's make this right. And where we've messed up, man, apologize. You know, one of the most, the two most powerful words on the planet is I'm sorry. But wait a minute. I'm sorry when it's not meaningful is more harmful. I'm sorry in truth and love is powerful. But that's all on you. David's helpful here in two reasons. First, he confronts Saul's paranoia. He says, verse nine, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seek you harm? You know what part of the problem is? We listen to what what everybody else says about our enemies. You know why? We love to chat about it. Can you believe he did that? Can you believe he said that? Can you believe he did that? And before long, we got four or five people in a group. And next thing you know, we're hoarding tortures and we're hunting somebody down. Can you believe that? And by the time we get done with all the believe that's, I mean, we have layered it to where they are Satan incarnate when what they might've done is just said the wrong thing at the wrong time. You know what I've learned? If you speak in public long enough, you will say something stupid sooner or later. I'm living proof. I have offended some of y'all and never even knew I did it. You know what I'd say? Man, tell me. Give me the opportunity to even pr- either prove that I'm a jerk or say I'm sorry in truth and love. But give me the opportunity to be one or the other. I'm, I won't promise you which one you'll get. I'll try to be the latter. But the fact of the matter is, that only comes through the power of Christ in me. So that was his first thing. Behold, David seeks you no harm. Boy, the second thing is David clarifies his intentions with Saul. He meant to bring him no harm. In verse 13, he says, but my hand will not be against you. We need to seek to clarify our motives and our intent as we pursue others and seek to make things right. Listen, if you come to me and you're in a marital crisis, you know what I'm going to say? The biggest challenge is y'all aren't talking to each other and you're just making up assumptions of one another. I think we all know what assumptions are. And so I just, listen, let, let's, let's be clear. Let's, let's don't take a kill shot. Let's make the first move. And then let's choose number three. Let's choose to do good for one another. Let's choose to do good. David and Saul reach an agreement. Now, now Saul's promise was temporary. I mean, you just go over to chapter 26 and you say, here he goes again, right? But David would keep his word. He'd do Saul and his house good as long as he was king. Listen, evidence of true reconciliation, real reconciliation is continuing love and goodness. It's not fake. It doesn't last for a while. Something, action happens on it. We move forward on it. C.S. Lewis once said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. You know, the easiest thing for a pastor to say to you, you need to forgive. You know, the hardest thing for a pastor it is to do, <laughs> ask for forgiveness. You know what, I look at that and I say to myself, a lot of us love the idea of reconciliation and doing good to our enemies, but when we have to do it, that's when our true intentions are found. David is a great example of what this looks like in real time. He resisted harming Saul. Now, he wasn't perfect. You see, here's the picture. 
David in the Old Testament is a prophesaical picture of Jesus in the New Testament. There's a greater David coming. There's a greater David coming, and his name is Jesus. Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, guess what? Jesus died for us. I mean, I want you to think about this. We were enemies with God, but he resisted harming us. He moved first, and he's now committed to our good in all things, according to Romans 8.28. So then how are we to act? Well, David gives us four quick things. You ready? All right, jot these down, and man, we'll get, we'll, we'll get you out of here. All right? Number one, he understood his righteousness was dependent on God. He understood his righteousness just based on verse 5, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, verse 17. He understood his righteousness was built on his convictions of God. How Your view of God is displayed every day in how you deal with relationships. Your view of God is displayed in how you deal with your relationship, built on his convictions, a daily discipline of yielding to the spirit of God. Secondly, his righteousness was built on change. Romans 6, 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You look at that and you say, his righteousness was built on his convictions in his daily walk with Christ, in his change because of what Christ had done in his heart, and it was built on character, God's character, the influence of our testimony found in verse 6 and 7 and verses 10 in this passage. His righteousness was built on conviction, change, and character. But not just his righteousness, but all of a sudden he had a respect for that person. Even though that person was meaning him harm, David had respect for Saul. David understood the word of God. First Chronicles 16, 22 says, touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm. By the way, Psalm 105, five says the same thing. Don't mess with, with God. You know why America ought to be friends with Israel? Don't mess with God's chosen. Don't mess with them. When you, you mess with Israel, you were messing with God. Dude, you do not want to do that. David understood the word of God, but David understood the example of Jesus. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 5. Listen to this. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own image, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. He respected the other person because of the word of God and because of the example of Jesus. How you see your relationship with Christ is always revealed in how you deal with difficult people. You know those old bracelets we used to have, WWJD? We might should have thought about that. What would be the mind of Christ as I deal with this person? Righteousness, respect, reconciliation. He got that concept. David appealed for reconciliation. You know why? He understood the start of the conflict. He understood it was about Saul. and, And frankly, he knew that Saul had allowed Satan to just get a hold of his heart filled with bitterness and strife and envy and anger and pettiness and jealousy. And let me tell you something. When when Satan gets a hold of your heart with those things, the first thing you'll do is start gathering up an army to go to war with somebody. So if you're huddled up with four or five and you've decided we're going to war with somebody, check your heart. Check your heart. He understood the start of the conflict, but he also understood the value of the relationship. 
verses 9 through 11. He understood, and this is big, the futility of vengeance. In verse 14, I mean, you know, he, he, he understood, listen, this isn't my war. I'm going to trust God to deal with you, bud. And the intervention of God. You know, one of the greatest lessons we will learn in dealing with difficult people is if your heart's right with God, he's got your back. But you either believe that or you don't. And if you don't believe it, you'll go on attack mode. And if you do believe it, you'll extend grace. You say, well, Chuck, is it that simple? Yeah. But that's not according to me. That's not according to this church. That's according to God. I mean, if, if the problem, if, if your problem with dealing with difficult people is I don't want to extend grace, your problem's not with me. Your problem's with him. Your problem's with the Lord. But now look at this last one, not just righteousness, respect, and reconciliation. This is, this is the money shot. You ready? He understood the reward. He understood the reward. He understood if I handle this biblically, I get God's presence and I get God's provision. I get God's protection. I get him right here with me, standing before me, being my shield, being my way, being my solid, righteous fortress. Or I take my life into my own hands and I take his presence and I take his provision away from me. So let me ask you a question. What do you want? Do you want all that God has for you or do you just want to handle things on your own? Because at the end of the day, the way we deal with difficult relationships comes down to is Jesus sitting on the throne of my heart or not? And for some of us, the only way we're going to know that is to ask him in. And to say, you know what, based on my life, based on my relationships, I better get this right with my king, my savior, and my Lord. And you know what it sounds like? Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. Come live in my life. Change me from the inside out. Scripture says, if you call on the name of the Lord, he will not just hear you, he will answer you and he will save you. And, and the song that we're about to sing literally is, is the cry of how we deal with these relationships in our life that are always there, whether they're a spouse, a child, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, somebody in church, whatever it is, it comes down to this, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. So today, if that's your cry, just make this your prayer. And he'll promise to answer you and hear you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray in our lives we would be a David, not a Saul. We'd, we'd cry out for your provision and your protection and your presence and not take life into our own hands. That we trust you in our relationships. But more than anything, God, we pray our relationship would be right with you. Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. We pray that in the name of Jesus, our King, our Savior, our Lord. Lord, we need you.